Well, dear congregation, I would ask you to please turn now your very prayerful attention to that passage that I read to you there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This morning we considered verses 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul has been addressing the Corinthian church, the believers there, of course, all who are in Christ are called saints, and he refers to them as brethren, how they are not to receive the grace of God in vain. And what the Apostle Paul does, and what I want to look at this evening, are the verses found in the verse 8b to the verse 10, where we find seven contrasts and comparisons, or even we could say seeming contrasts, seeming paradoxes. And I want to use these seeming paradoxes that describe not only the Apostle Paul, but Paul who would be as an example to the flock. And I want to appeal both to believer this evening, and if you're an unbeliever this evening, and to ask the question, do these things describe you? And do they describe me? And also at the same time, with the unbeliever in mind, if there be any that are without Christ, without a saving knowledge in him, I want to, with the Lord's help this evening, open up these seeming contrasts and comparisons and show you how wonderful the Christian life really is and all that we have and how the world has rather strange views of Christians. And maybe you're sat here tonight and maybe you have a rather strange view of what a Christian is or maybe it's never really come to your mind or understanding what a true Christian really is. But I trust that the Lord will help with these things here tonight. So, something I trust for all of us. This morning, remember, as we looked at verses 1 and 2, the Christian is saved by grace. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us there in those verses, that a Christian, while he is saved by grace, when he is saved, he is brought into the family of God and he is brought into faith union with Jesus Christ and available to his disposal at the throne of grace every day is a very gracious God who giveth more grace. We've considered there this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 16, and of his grace have we received grace for grace, more grace in the Christian life. And what Paul is really doing in this chapter here, chapter 6, is... He is moving on to, as it were, put himself before the Corinthians and show how he is not living the Christian life as one who is receiving the grace of God in vain. This is what Paul is doing. He is, as it were, putting himself in the barrel of the shotgun. He's not boasting, let me say, first of all. He's saying we, as workers of God, we want you, we're not perfect men, Paul, he would say, wouldn't he, in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And yet he could also say, I labored, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Paul here, when he speaks of these various things, and you'll see this evening, with the Lord's help, trust that we'll be able to open it up, how Paul, first of all, in verse 3, to the verse 8, he sets himself forth before the Corinthian church 
in all the labors, in all the struggles of the ministry, how he has been able to perform these things by the grace of God. Again, he's not boasting in himself. He's giving glory to God for the Christian life. Now, Paul, what we see here and what we'll see by these seeming contrasts and comparisons in verse 8b to the verse 10 will be things that will be true of every Christian. Because it is fair to say, we know this, Paul said, follow me, for I follow Christ. And the pastor, the elder, any church officer is to be an example to the flock of what all of God's people are to be. What was true of the Apostle Paul should be true spiritually of every true Christian. And I'm sure we would all agree with that. You know, there's not some, of course, pastors and elders are to be that example. But you know, the standard is the same for all of us. Holiness, righteousness in the Christian life. You know, there's no such thing as a super spiritual Christian. All Christians are to be spiritual and faithful in the Christian life. And he'll give us a list here of things that he has experienced and things that he continues to experience in his life as a minister. He has just said how the Lord helps. The same Lord of Isaiah 49, how the Lord succored even our Lord Jesus in the days of his flesh. But the Christian too is succored by the Lord of heaven. And he says this, on the back foot of what he's just said in verses 1 and 2, giving no offense in anything. You see, that's the Christian's aim, my unbelieving friend. He doesn't want to offend unnecessarily. There's some things in the Christian life and some things we have to say will give an offense. But we don't give offense when it comes to our sin. We confess our sin and even if we sin before others, well, we have to say to them, we're sinners. And our aim is not to give offense in anything. Why? And here he's speaking primarily about his ministry, verse 3, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. Now, I want you to notice Paul here is speaking about himself and Timothy and Titus and the other fellow workers, because verse 1, he says, we then as workers together with him, that's Christ. He's saying, we, we want you to consider us as ministers of the gospel, giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses. If you're an unbeliever this evening, if you know not God, I challenge you to read of the life of the Apostle Paul, how many times... He was so near to death. Lystra, stoned, Derby. This man suffered much. What was behind it all? Well, he was a man greatly forgiven. Greatly forgiven by the Lord. He who loves much has been forgiven much. And he had been given a commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now notice what he faced in verse 5. In stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, 
in watchings, in fastings. Why did he do these things? Well, for the Lord's sake. At times he needed to fast, spend special time in concentrated prayer, spend time with the Lord. And he knew that if his life was marked by sin, nobody would listen to him. He was a godly man. And it's true, isn't it? For anyone that is a Christian. We know this. People watch you before they listen to you. Because can you blame them? There's so many hypocrites out there. Plenty. The world is full of them. But it doesn't let you off, my friend. If you are unsaved, it's very easy to say, well, the church is full of hypocrites. Why should I... Why should I be a part of the church of Jesus Christ? Well, it doesn't let you off the hook. We are warned that there will be many false teachers, that there will be many empty professors. There will be many that will say, Lord, Lord, open up unto us. And he will say, I never knew. Depart from me. Paul knew he had to be a pure man. His conscience void of offense between, before God and men. By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost. That's where his strength lay. In the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian understands this. He says, I am weak. I can do nothing. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the Christian. Seems a paradox, perhaps even right here. By love unfeigned. The Christian knows that his love has to be true because God sees right through him, right through her. When we give, we don't do as the Pharisees give to be seen. They have their reward. The Christian knows this, his love toward God and fellow men, even when there is a kind deed act done within the church. If that act it's done to be seed of men. That person has no reward with God. By the word of truth. That's the Bible, my friends. This is how he did it. By the power of God. That's it. By the armor of righteousness. On the right hand and on the left. Some speak here concerning the breastplate of righteousness. Faith. We know faith worketh by love. We're told that. Where there is true faith. Faith in what? In the object of our faith. Jesus Christ. There's true love. If we truly see him for what he is and who he is. We, we love him who we've not seen. We love him. We yearn for him with joy unspeakable. This was Paul's desire. This is what motivated him. The very one who he persecuted. Remember it was Paul. Saul of Tarsus formerly. There on that road to Damascus. With papers in his hands. Ready to put Christians into prison. And the Lord stopped him. And said Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? Saul was persecuting Christ. But then. The Lord stopped him. Showed him his self-righteousness. His self-made religion of self-righteousness. Thinking he was a keeper of the law. But 
the Lord showed him that he was a covetous man, that he was proud, that he was boastful. This is the Lord he serves now, the Lord who has had mercy on him. Now, this is true for every Christian, my friend. Every one of us, we would say, we've all found mercy. The only reason why we're saved is God has had mercy on us. We were lost. We didn't seek God. It was him that actually drew us into a church, into the corpus, into the body of believers. And we came to hear the word of God. I know this is true for me. The Lord worked through circumstance in my life and time. Brought me to a crossroad in my life. Showed me all my past. How I'd live for myself. And live for my own glory. Live for my own praise. And suddenly like Paul, it was like light came in. Into this dark heart. And I was brought to that place of repentance toward God. And then faith in the Lord Jesus, who I knew that moment died for me. I knew in my heart and I believed upon him. Now, how can I explain the last 30 so years of my life now as a Christian? God. God is the one who saved me by grace. And I can take no credit for any good in my life, any virtue. Now this evening I want us to look carefully at these seeming contrasts. And again, let me say, Paul here, he's not commending himself as it were. He's saying this is how really I and God's fellow workers are. And this is true of how every Christian ought to be. This is how the church of Corinth ought to be thinking. Many of them weren't thinking aright. Now, Paul here, let us open up these texts, these verses. And you notice from verse 8, he's told of the sufferings that he has endured as a Christian for Christ. And these are truths, let me say, seeming contradictions, and they are marked by the word as. You'll see that there are seven altogether. And I want to expand on these or seek to open them up. Notice there at the verse 8b. He gets finishing by speaking by honour and dishonour, by evil report and good report. That was his life. He had a good report amongst some, but some defamed him. Now notice, as deceivers and yet true. That's the first contrast. And you notice every time there's an as. As known and yet well known. Un, as unknown and yet well known. So let's come to the first. First of all, I'm addressing us all here. And the Christian, this is a good test as to whether we are in Christ. How does the world perceive you? Maybe you might be sat here tonight and you wonder about Christians. Well, what about Christians? This is what the world thinks. As deceivers and yet true. 
That's what the world thinks of God's people. And we are prepared to bear that. Are we not? If we are Christ's. As deceivers, and yet true. How often has the Christian been described by the unbelieving, but you're deceiving everybody. I have this often, and I'm sure maybe you've even had it in your families. I don't know if it's true about you, but I think it's true about those who are Christians. I have this every week in the open air ministry. Why are you out again? You're just deceiving people. Why don't you get a real job, they say. You speak to people about things that are most solemn. You speak about judgment day. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And they say, yeah, well, that day is far away. No, no, we don't know what a day brings forth. And we speak to them most sincerely and say, my friend, you know not what a day may bring forth. And I remind people every day and every time I go out there that that obituary column has always got names in it. It's just a matter of time that your name will be there and my name will be there. We're not deceiving anybody. We're dealing with reality. The reality is we are not deceivers. The world is deceived in thinking that there is no God. You know, the scriptures say the fool has said in his heart. It's a heart problem. There is no God. He can see with his head there is a God. That's why there is such in the world antagonism against the truth. Because men know. That's why they get troubled when you start speaking about death. Oh, please, we don't want to hear that. Don't want to hear about the Lord. Don't want to hear about sin. What does he say here? As deceivers and yet true. My friends, this Bible is the truth. It has stood the testimony of time. People have tried to scrutinize the truth of God's word and that's, that's what we do. And we try to live it out. We say this is the truth. And yet people say... You are deceived and you just want to deceive others. You're just deceiving people. Where is your God, they say. Stop making me feel guilty. Leave us alone. Well, this has always been the case. It's nothing new under the sun. It's always been the case. Solomon says, there is nothing that has been that is which shall be there. Is there anything whereof it may be said? See, this is new. It was the case, was it not, in the days of Noah, that preacher of righteousness. God is coming. He was building that ark, and that ark, every day, was speaking to people. And we're told that in the last days, scoffers shall arise, saying, where is the promise of his coming? As deceivers in the eyes of men and women of this world, and yet true. You know, with all this so-called advancement of modern science, it's true to say that Christians have never more been so accused as being deceivers. Science doesn't do, disprove God. Listen to the modern leading voice 
of so-called philosophy and science, Richard Dawkins. He said this, the Bible should be taught, but emphatically not as reality. It is fiction, he says, myth, poetry, anything but reality. That's the world we're living in. But you know, an honest reader of the Bible will see that it is true. The amount of people that I meet in the open air, as I'm sure maybe you even meet, that criticize the Bible, but you ask them, what have you read from Scripture? They can say hardly anything. And whatever they know, the facts are always skewed and everything is out of being. That's it. That's the world, isn't it? But the Bible is not a myth. And the things that are happening in the world, and the Lord Jesus, you think about the year 2023. We mark history, Mr. Dawkins, by the coming of Jesus Christ. Of the world. He's not a myth. And he's coming again. And it's love that compels us. Because we know God has said when he comes what he's going to do. He's going to destroy men. And Paul tells us for this sake the wrath of God is coming. Because of sin. But you see men don't take the Bible seriously. As deceivers. And yet true. It's a good question. Are you a Christian? You see, these are also acid tests. Are you a Christian? Are you prepared to stand up before the unbelieving world and say, this is the truth. I believe it. I'm prepared to die upon these truths. That's a Christian. And you see, if, if you value it that much, you prize it. You prize every meeting and gathering as Mr. Lynch brings you under the word of God. We love God's word because it's the truth. We were once deceived, but now we are light in the Lord. You say there was a time in my life when I didn't know the truth. I was in darkness. Do you really believe the Bible? Do you really have a hope in Jesus Christ? Well, you will hold on with a death grip. With a death grip. There are so many who profess to be Christians. And I'm sure some of you will say with me, we're sick to the back teeth of these things. But they do not hold to the truth. They're in the church occasionally. That's how much they think of the truth. That's today. True or yet deceivers and yet true. That's the Christian Secondly, as no unknown, look, and yet well-known, as unknown. Unknown by the world. The world doesn't know us. The world doesn't really understand us. The world doesn't know what makes us tick, and yet they think they know us. You're a bunch of crazy people. Yet we're well-known by God. We have communion with him. We know the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. My friend, that's the Christian. He, he, he comes to God in prayer. He knows he's a sinner. She's a sinner. They know they're unworthy. And yet they know they're accepted in Jesus Christ. 
They know every time they sin, they can come and plead his merits and his shed blood. They're unknown by the world. But they're known by God. And that is the most important thing in this life. You know, you can, you can have many friends. That's not important. Because all those friends will die. But if you have God, you have everything. Everything. Known of him. How long has he known his people? He knew them even before, David says in the Psalm 139, even in our mother's womb. But even before that, even before the foundation of the world, God had determined to have fellowship with his people. And he with them and them with him. That they would commune in their hearts. That they would come to know the Lord Jesus. As unknown and yet well known. Surely this ought to bring us comfort. You see the Christian. This is why the Christian can be content. He doesn't need a lot of friends in this world. In fact he doesn't need the world. You know, often unbeliever. People think we're mad. Because we're happy with our own company and just a few people. But that's life. God has put us into the family of God. First John 3, 1, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Known and yet well known. Known by God. Something else, thirdly, as dying. And yet, behold, we live. What what does he mean, as dying? Well, of course, we're all dying. But there's another way in which a Christian is dying. He's dying to the old self. I want to ask you that question. Are you dying to self? The Lord Jesus said, you know them by their fruits. And one of those fruits is there's a putting off of the gold. You see the person changing. It's like the caterpillar in the cocoon. It's changing. One day it's going to fly. One day God's people are going to be with him forever. We're dying to self. Paul tells us here, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's a new life. It's not a perfect life. But you can say, I'm not what I was. As dying, and yet behold, we live. You say, I'm living now. I'm beginning to really taste what life is. I understand the world now. I never understood it before. The outward man is perishing, but an inward man is being renewed day by day. And there's a sense in one day we're going to live in his sight. We have it in Romans 8. Paul tells us there, If we, by the Spirit of God, put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. We'll live in his sight. We'll live now. As dying, behold, we live. People say, well, you have killed joys. Do you really enjoy this? Yes. Because remember what sin did. It brought such misery to our lives. My friend, I want to tell you that. The pleasures of this world, ask Solomon, read the pages of scripture. They cannot bring, he sought pleasure in many things, but he couldn't find it, but in God. 
To fear God is to know God and to enjoy him forever. That's life. Uh, what did the Lord Jesus say? I am come that they may have life and they might have it more abundantly. Dying, and yet we live. My soul is now alive unto God. Something else, notice, as chastened and not killed. So this is a strange thing. You as Christians, you're chastened. And we know that when our parents chastened us, it wasn't a pleasant thing. But God's chastening is so different. His chastening can be very painful. But you know, in the end, we're not going to be destroyed with this world. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Why? So that we may be partakers of his holiness. That's all we're told. That's chastened and yet not killed. The fact that God is chastening me now is a sweet reminder to me that I'm not going to hell. It's a wonderful thing that he loves me. I remember some years ago, we had a family come in. Two sons were professional football players, come into the church, very wealthy family. And they're used to a health, wealth and prosperity ministry. And the father decides to bring these up and coming football players. They're very well known now in the church. And I preach from that Psalm 119. And David says, it is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I go not astray. The man said, that's, that's not Christianity. He said, that, that, that's not the Bible I know. He said, it's good for the Christian to be afflicted. I said, well, it is. Because the Christian life is not about sin. The Christian life is that we go, don't go astray from God. Well, the Lord chastens that we not be destroyed with this world. This is a different kind of Christianity today. People go to church to get wealthy. Do you take my business card? To make business contacts and friends. But the Lord chastens those who he loves. The Lord says in Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. It's a wonderful thing, you know, to know that the Lord is dealing with your heart, chastening you over your sin. It's good that we go not astray and that we be not destroyed with this world, chastened and not killed. And God just knows how to do it in our lives. Something else, fifthly, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As sorrowful. How is it that you've seen, my unbelieving friends, if there are any here tonight, you have seen Christians going through the darkest of trials and yet they can sing with joy amidst their tears. How is it? Well, they have a joy. And that joy is the Lord. Because they believe in a sovereign God. So that as sorrowful, they're always rejoicing. What do they sorrow over? They sorrow over their sin. They sorrow over the state of the world. 
They sorrow over the fact that they are not what they ought to be and that other Christians are not what they ought to be too and that they rejoice because there is a God, the God of heaven, they know is at work in their lives and they know this world is not a utopia but there is a blessed world that is to come. And they know that God works all things together, my friend, for good to them that love him, to them that are called according to his purpose. So they're always, though they may be sorrowing, yet they rejoice. And they, in those times of trial, they dig deep into the word of God and they thank God for their trials and their difficulties. Sixthly, as we think on these things, as poor, yet making many rich, as poor, we, you know, the world looks at us. They say, we, we see these Christians, they don't have much. What are they? Look, just a few of them gathered here in this little place. Look at our homes, we don't have much. Look in the Bank accounts, if they want, they don't see much there. But yet making many rich. See, we're not living for this world. Make people rich in Christ by bringing them the truth. Because this is life. Paul said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. Because we think too of the one who was rich beyond all of our comprehension and yet was made poor for our sakes. The Lord Jesus, who owning heaven, left heaven to come into this sinful world, to suffer on a cross. He who owns heaven, he who made the world and the universe, came into this world, my friends, to give me heaven and eternal life. And therefore I am content, and you ought to be content in whatever state we're in, to be happy in him. By the world's standards, the Christian has nothing. And I want you to notice this, this leads to the next. What does he say? As having nothing. By the world's standards, and yet possessing all things, everything. This is my father's world. It's not Jeff Bezos' world. It's not the king's world. It's our father's world. And he's given it to his son. And God will make a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. This is the Christian life. Do you have it? The scriptures say, Envy thou not sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. For there is an expectation, for there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. It's a wonderful thing.
Don't envy sinners if you're saved. Because there is an end. And your expectation shall not be cut off. That's why I read from Isaiah 54, the state of the church. No weapon, my friends, no weapon that is formed against the church shall prosper. Why? Because you, all you've got to read is the previous passage. Isaiah 53. The Lord Jesus has purchased a church, such a people, who will be content in him. As you go home tonight, I want to ask you, with judgment day honesty, are you content with this passing world? Well, if you are, you will perish with it. I pray that God might wake you to your sin and the wrath that is to come to all that love this world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we are told by Paul, as I close with one verse, if any man, and we find it in 1 Corinthians, these are solemn words. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. The strongest possible words we can know. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, let him be anathema, maranatha. Why such a strong word? The Lord Jesus, my friends, is God. And if any man does not love God, he would say it's right for him to be accursed. How could you not love God who became man and went to a cross to die for sinful people? It is only right that you be accursed. And look at the words, let him be anathema. And what does the word maranatha means? Mean, come, even so come. Solemn, isn't it? If we are content in Christ, we take no pride tonight, but we rejoice that God has opened our eyes to see and made us happy. In our Lord and Saviour. Amen. Amen. Amen.